sound. Can you hear me? All right, good. Speak up. Yeah. Pardon, Kevin. Yes, please. Yeah, would you pass those out? Thank you. Yes, please. Yes. Thanks. Might be some pens or something in the back if you need, if you need something to write with, you could raise your hand and they're in the what? Are they in the pew? I don't know. I suppose. You found one? Yeah? Okay. <coughs> yeah, maybe so. Okay, this morning we're continuing with the idea we started a couple weeks ago, and that is... Uh, digging at the scriptures in order to determine the answer to this question. And as I said, um, within the last year or so, there seems to, out on the internet, there's a big interest in talking about end time events and what's going to happen. A lot of conversation about the rapture and other things like that. And one of the words that keeps coming up over and over and over again is this word, the Antichrist. And lots of people have speculation about who the Antichrist is, right? And last time that we were together, we went through the five different uses of the word Antichrist found there in the epistles of John. And then we went from there into 2 Thessalonians, where we talked about, where we found this title, that man of sin, who's also called the son of perdition and the lawless one. And what we did is we started saying, look it, let's not speculate about this. Right? God has given us lots and lots of detail, lots of identifying characteristics, identifying marks as to who this man of sin is. In fact, the last time we were together, we found out that in 2 Thessalonians, there were 12 of them all together. Um, it's not on your paper right now. It's the paper that we handed out last time. And here it was, this, number one, that that man of sin precedes the second coming of Christ, which makes sense, doesn't it? That the man of sin would have to reveal himself or be revealed before the second coming of Christ. The second point out of 2 Thessalonians was that He's associated with the falling away. The third, his identity would be revealed first. And then number four, before that falling away, number four, he's also called the son of perdition. He opposes and exalts himself above God. He sits as God in the temple of God, and he proclaims that he is God. Those are pretty boastful terms, aren't they? Now, you'll notice that some of them have circles around them, number one, number five, number seven. And the reason why is because those same points that are found there in 2 Thessalonians are going to be repeated in Daniel chapter 7. Who is this man of sin? Is the man of sin the same 
person as the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. How would we know? Well, we would know because they share characteristics in common. Does that make sense? They share characteristics in common. So the three that are there, and we'll, we'll get a little further into that. The next point was this, number eight, is he's also called the lawless one. Number nine, he will be consumed and destroyed at the Christ's second coming. Of course, we have to wait for that one, won't we? His coming is according to the working of Satan. He utilizes all the powers, signs, lying wonders, and unrighteous deceptions. And he deceives those who did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now that point, number 11, is really the reason why I feel it's important for us to dig at this. The reason why all those other identifying characteristics are there, and the reason why the whole topic of understanding who this man of sin is, is because of that point, number 11. He utilizes all power and signs and lying wonders and unrighteous deceptions. In fact, the Bible tells us that those, that power, those lying wonders, those unrighteous deceptions are going to be so convincing. Jesus said, if those days were not shortened, if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. You get that? Now, in point number 12, it tells us specifically who is deceived. It says, he deceives those who did not receive, what? The love of the truth, so that they might be saved. It isn't just to receive truth, it's to receive what? A love of the truth. I love the truth. Now, to tell you the truth, Sometimes loving the truth hurts a little. Have you experienced that? Sometimes the truth cuts. And the reason why it cuts is it cuts across what we think is truth. Or what we choose to believe. Or what we choose to receive instead. And then we're reading God's word and the Holy Spirit has a way of meddling when you're reading God's Word. And He brings home conviction to the heart. We're reading it, and we're saying, hey, wait a minute, that's not what I was taught. That's not what I learned. That's not what I thought. That's not even what I'd like to believe. Right? But God's Word, quick and powerful, though it be, dividing even to the bone and marrow, and soul and spirit is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And God writes those things in his word that the truth might come home. Why? That we might walk in the way and the truth and the life. That's Jesus, isn't it? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, says Jesus. I want to walk with Jesus. 
And if I find something in the scriptures that cuts across what I have always been taught, well, I can trust that the word of God is true. Amen? I don't want to be among those who are deceived because I love not the truth. And again, look what it says as the sentence finishes, that they might be saved. In other words, it says, loving the truth not only keeps me from deception, but it puts me into a place where I can be saved. How many of you would like to be saved? Amen? That's what we're here for, right? Seeking after Christ. Let's start in the book of Daniel. Now, we've been there a number of times. You've been there a number of times over the years. And the book of Daniel, particularly chapter 7. Now, you know that Daniel is outlined prophecy. You know that in Daniel chapter 2, there was a statue. And that statue had a head of gold and arms and chest of silver and a waist and thighs of bronze and then had legs of iron and then feet of iron and clay and there were ten toes on that feet and then the feet of iron and clay are eventually hit by a stone that's cut out without hands that comes down out of heaven and it smites the statue and it busts it into pieces and it's blown away as the chaff of heaven now that same idea called outline prophecy is repeated again in daniel chapter 7 in daniel chapter 7 there is a lion which has the wings of an eagle. There is a bear, and that bear is raised up on one side, and he has three ribs in his mouth. And then it's followed by a leopard that has four heads. And that leopard that has four heads has four wings like a fowl. And then there's this beast that John can't seem to describe. He can't tell you what it is. I mean, he could tell you the other was a lion with eagle's wings and a, and a leopard with four heads and the wings of a fowl, right? So obviously, he's got his zoology down. But this last beast, he can't describe it. I mean, he tells you what its teeth look like and what its claws look like and, and that it's fierce and it's terrible, but he can't tell you, hey, this is what it is. He'd never seen one, obviously. The indescribable beast, that indescribable beast with iron teeth, fourth in line like the iron legs, that indescribable beast has ten horns on its head, like the ten toes of the feet of iron and of clay. Those ten horns are the divided Roman Empire. That head of gold was Babylon, followed by Medo-Persia, followed by Greece, followed by Rome, and the feet of iron and clay was the divided Roman Empire. The stone cut out without hands is the second coming of Christ. Amen? So that beast with ten horns, we know that when Rome fell, it was divided up into ten kingdoms. Most of those kingdoms exist to this very day. Not necessarily as kingdoms anymore. Some of their regal system still exists, and the kings and the queens and so forth still rule, sort of, over those countries. 
Let's start in Daniel chapter 7, only this time what we're going to do is we're not going to focus on all of the details. We're just going to focus on a few, and those few are the ones, the verses that are specifically telling us identifying marks of this little horn. Daniel chapter 7, you see the pencil up there? That means that it's on your paper. Daniel chapter 7, the words that are in gold, those are the ones that go in the little blank slots on your paper. Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. I was considering the horns, says Daniel, and there was another horn. What kind of a horn? A little horn. So he's little in comparison to the others. He came up, where did he come up? Among them. Why among? See, that's an important word. It's an important characteristic. We know where he came up. He came up among them. In other words, he couldn't possibly have existed until the ten existed. You can't come up amongst people who don't exist. Right? So the ten had to exist, and those ten didn't exist for quite some time. We'll see exactly when in just a minute. He came up among them, and not only did he come up among them, but before whom, how many? Three of those first ten were plucked up by the roots. And there, in this horn, as we read in the scripture reading, there were eyes like the eyes of a man, and he had a mouth speaking what? Pompous words. Pompous. It's an interesting word, isn't it? Pompous. Anybody ever ask you a question like, how big was it? And you say something like, it was big, big. Or it was far, far. Or it was long, long. You ever said that, where you say the word twice? I have kind of a joke with Denise. She likes to do that. She, she says the word twice for emphasis. It's been a long, long time. <laughs> I'll go long, long. She, she'll, she'll laugh. Well, guess what? This word that's translated into pompous, see the little number that's right there? If you look up there at the top, it says rab. Rab. Rab, rab. Rab means huge. So his words were rab, rab. You know what that means? Huge, huge words. They weren't just huge words, but they were huge, huge. It seems like they've been doing that for a long time, and my wife certainly wasn't the first one. Right? His words were pompous words. They were Huge, huge words. Huge, huge words. Now we know that when Rome fell, it divided into ten pieces. And there's the ten pieces right up there in front of us. The Anglo-Saxons. Anybody know who those people are? The Anglo-Saxons. And then there's those Franks. And no, we're not talking about something like a hot dog. Right? Who are the Franks? Those French people. Je ne parle pas français. I don't speak French. Right? 
There's the French, and then there's the Visigoths. Hmm, who might they be? The Spaniards and the Suevi. It's kind of hard for you to read from way back here. The Suevi are the Portuguese. And then there's the Lombards and the Burgundies, and then the Alemanni. But then there are three others there. The Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. The Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. Where are they? They no longer exist. They no longer exist. Now remember that little horn he came up among the ten? Well, the ten weren't completed in their divisions until 476 A.D. So the little horn could not have possibly come up until 476 A.D., right? Because the ten didn't exist. But that little horn was going to have to tear up how many? Three of them by the roots. Now we know the English are still there and the French are still there and the Germans are still there and the Swiss are still there and the Portuguese are still there and the Spaniards are still there and the Italians are still there. But those other three, they're gone. One by one, the little horn, somebody, set about to get rid of them. Right? And we should be able to look in history and find out who it was. And lo and behold, we can. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 20, we read a little further. It says this, The ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn, that's the little one, which came up before which three fell, plucked up by the roots, Namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth, speaking what? Rab-rab. Words was, had the appearance, and his appearance was what? Greater. Now that word greater, it's just simply rab. He was, his appearance was huge. Or we would say, huger. Just not huger, huger. His appearance was huger than whom? His fellows. Now, isn't that curious, isn't it? Because he's called, what kind of a horn? A little horn. He's a little horn. He's a little guy. And yet his appearance is huger than his fellows. And interesting. He speaks pompous words. He's got little guy syndrome, maybe. Right? You ever meet a little guy who, who has big, boisterous voice and a big, boisterous appearance, and, and yet he's a little guy. Right? This little horn has an appearance greater than his fellows. Now, it's interesting as I said, there weren't going to be any mysteries, right? We're not going to get to the end and find out that this is anyone different than what all of the reformers knew and said, and so on and so forth, but it's not so popular or even well-known today that this little horn 
of Daniel chapter 7, based on all of its characteristics, along with that man of sin of 2 Thessalonians, with all of his characteristics, that there's only one entity in history that fulfills all of them. Now, most of the churches today are looking for an Antichrist that's going to come somewhere out of the Middle East or maybe out of Europe. He's going to be a very charismatic kind of guy, and he's going to arrive now. Well, there's a problem with that. If he would arrive now, he's not going to arrive among the ten divisions of the Roman Empire because three of them are gone. Not only is he not going to arrive among them, he's also not going to be able to pluck three of them up from the roots because three of them have already been plucked up. Who was it that did this plucking? Well, history tells us, in history books, you can just read them, they'll tell you that it was this person who took on the title Pontifex Maximus. Now, Maximus isn't a very hard word to figure out in Latin. It means Maximus. It means greater, right? Now, Pontifex means bridge builder. His title is the greater bridge builder. Now, we might think that that title is a title which is exclusive to the Holy Roman Empire. But it's not. It appears from history that the first person who took on that title, Pontifus Maximus, was... Um, I got Alexander in my brain, and that's not it. It was Augustus. <laughs> there we go. Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar took on the title of greatest bridge builder because he stepped into the role of being both the head of state and the head of religion. What was he? The head of state and the head of religion. And thus, in himself, he was the bridge builder. You get it? What was he building the bridge between? Church and state. Pontifus Maximus. When the Roman church came to power, as pagan Rome is falling, the Roman church takes on the title of the Roman Empire, but not just the Roman Empire, the what? the Holy Roman Empire. We're the Roman Empire sanctified, cleansed, purified, made holy. Right? They take on the role of Holy Roman Empire and the head of the church, the Papa, the Pope, takes on the title that had been adopted by the Caesars, right, from the time of Augustus. And he becomes the Pontifex Maximus, the greatest bridge builder. 
Well, it would, yes. The, so the, the church, right, is the one that when they're given, see, what happened is the capital moves from Rome to where? Do you remember where it moved to? Constantinople. Constantinople. And you probably wouldn't guess who moved it to Constantinople. Constantine, wow, that's, that's puzzling, isn't it? Constantine moves the capital from Rome to Constantinople. Anybody know what Constantinople is called today? Istanbul, that's right, it's called Istanbul. So he moves there, and as he vacates Rome, there's sort of a vacuum left, in a sense. And then Justinian and others, they take the Pope and they say, the, the head of the church, and they kind of put him as the man in charge. Here, here's Rome. You are in charge here. You kind of oversee things. And over time, as powers rise up, particularly these three Aryan powers, the Hurrialite Vandals and the Ostrogoths, the papacy sets about to get rid of its opposition. And the great bridge builder, trying to unite what? church and state uses the power of the state in order to cleanse the church of those whom he considers heretical. Thus, by 538, did you get that number? 538, the last of those three the Hurrialite Vandals and the Ostrogoths are plucked up by the roots. He comes up among them, and three of them are destroyed. Now let's see if there are any other terminologies. Daniel says in verse 21, I was watching, and that same horn was making war against the saints. And what? prevailing against them. He was making war, what? Against the saints. Did the church ever make war against the saints? Hmm. If you were to ask them, they'd say no. They would say they were making war against the heretics. And what's interesting is the heretics said... We're standing on the word of God. And we're making the word of God the standard of our faith. And they said, no, you will accept our teachings, many of which were borrowed and adopted from where? From pagan Rome and the other religions as they went around the world, they would adopt parts of Druidism and other, you know, you can go all the way around the world, you can see this to this very day. You go into the islands, it's a little mixed with voodoo. You go into Mexico, it's mixed with other things like the Day of the Dead. And if you go, right? And then, they began to make war against those that they disagreed with. And not only did they make war against the saints, but they also, what does it say? 
prevailed against them. And then it tells us how long that battle over these doctrinal differences, these differencings of opinion of the word of God versus tradition would continue. Look what it says. Until, until when? Until the ancient of days comes. When is that? The ancient of days coming? It is the equivalent of Daniel chapter 2 of the little of the stone cut out without hands coming down out of heaven. It is Jesus Christ coming in the clouds of glory. This this differencing of opinion and this persecution in that sense would continue until the second coming of Christ. That'll be significant, particularly in a few more weeks. And the judgment was made in favor of who? The saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Amen? Now in the Western Watchmen, which is a Catholic document, in 1909, They wrote this. The church has what? Prosecuted. The church has done what? Prosecuted. Only a tyro, that means a novice, in church history will deny that. They're bold, aren't they? We've prosecuted. Of course we have. We've always defended the persecution of the Huguenots and the Spanish Inquisition. And when she thinks good to use force, she will use it. Why? Why would a church use force? Let's stop for just a moment and think about this word Christian. The word Christian means to be a follower of Christ. Do you remember Jesus using force? Do you remember him persecuting those who didn't believe what he believed or doing what he taught? No. Why would a church use force? Maybe. Coercion. Force. Right? You will believe what we teach. You will accept what we teach. Or else. Now I'm going to tell you something that's a little twisted. There's this teaching that says that every one of us has an immortal soul. It's not a biblical teaching. The Bible clearly says, the soul that sinneth, it will surely die. That's not immortality. But if we believe we have an immortal soul, which was borrowed from the Greeks and the Egyptians and others, 
then we would believe that the soul is going to continue on either in a state of paradise or in a state of eternal torment. Thus, if I were the guardian of the soul and someone was refusing to accept the doctrines of the church, and if the statement was that salvation is only through the acceptance of those doctrines of the church, then the person who's refusing to accept it is in eternal peril. You get that? Because they have an immortal soul, which would be immortally tormented. Another teaching that was borrowed from Egyptian and Greek mythology. Thus, if I really were concerned for them, then I would use whatever means necessary in order to get them to change their minds. Thus, I might put them on some means of torment. And if through that torment, I could get them to come to the place where they made an acknowledgement of what I considered to be the truth, when they acknowledged that the church was indeed the representative of God on earth. And then, upon that acknowledgement, I were to end their life. I would subsequently be saving their soul for eternity. Isn't that some interesting logic? I didn't just make that up. That's the reasoning for torture and torment in order to bring somebody to the place of acknowledging so that we might save their immortal soul. Only a novice in church history would deny that we have always defended and per the persecution of the Huguenots and the Spanish Inquisition. And when she thinks good to use force, she'll use it. Does the church have an army? The answer is no. In a sense, we know that she's always relied upon the armies of the governments, the regal systems, and so on and so forth, that she was able to influence, to do her biddings. Daniel chapter 7, this time verse 24. The ten horns, the, Abel Gabriel, the angel Gabriel says, are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom out of Rome the fourth beast, the indescribable one. And another shall arise when? After them. So among them and after them. And he shall be what? Different from the first ones. Different. Maybe because all ten were actually 
kingdoms, with kings, but this one doesn't have a king, so to speak. He's not a royal regal system, but yet a church. He's different from the first ones, and he shall subdue what? Three, plucking them up by the roots. In verse 25, we read this. And he shall speak what? Rab-rab. Huge, huge words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints. What's he going to do? Persecute the saints of the Most High, and he shall intend to change. In other words, he's not going to manage to do it, but he's going to intend to change what? Times and laws. And the saints shall be given into his hands for a time, times, and a dividing of time. A time, times, and a dividing of time. What's he going to intend to change? Times and laws. Now some people read this word times as referring to like festive days, such as the exchange of Passover, which the early church kept, for the Feast of Easter, right? And other such exchanges of holidays to move away from a Jewish appearance into, well, we can't really say a Catholic appearance or even a Christian appearance because most of those things were all adopted from pagan Rome or other cultures around them. Right? Some people see this word times as referring to festives. Then the word law they see as referring maybe specifically to the Ten Commandments. Some people see the two words times and laws as referring specifically to a one of the Ten Commandments that specifically deals with time. Read it how you will. All above apply. Right? And it says that he would reign in persecuting the saints specifically for a specific period of time. A time, times, and a half a time. Now, a Hebrew calendar is a lunar calendar. Our calendar is a solar calendar. The lunar calendar has 360 days sort of like the degrees in a circle, right? With 12 months, sort of like the number of hours times two in a day, right? 360 days in the lunar year, that's a time. Times would be twice that. 360 and 360 is? 720. There, there it is up there. And then... A dividing of time, what's half of a circle? How many degrees? 180 degrees, right? And a dividing of time, half of that time. If you add those up, you get 1,260 days, and we know that that day is actually a year. Now, if this were the only place in the Bible that that's actually talked about, well, then we might say, oh, that's a little bit of interesting speculation. However, in the book of Revelation, it's called a times, times, and dividing times. It's also called 1,260 days. It's also called 42 months. And it's also called three and a half years. 
So, it's repeated a number of times. Right? 1,260, and we understand that that's a day for a year in prophecy. And if that last of the three, the Hurrielite, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths, if the Ostrogoths were finally destroyed in 538, if that's the starting point, and if persecution actually started taking place of the saints for 1,260 years, that would carry us through time to a period of 1798. Now, if we went to 1798 and we, we couldn't find something that happened, well, then we might realize that our starting point was wrong. But if in 1798 something happened that was also prophesied, like one of the heads of the beast in Revelation chapter 13, is it? I think it is. Would be receive a wound that would appear as unto death, but then that deadly wound would be healed, and that all the world would marvel and follow after the beast, then 1798 might be important. The last of those three kingdoms is destroyed in 538, the Ostrogoths. And 1,260 years later, Napoleon is marching across Europe. The Pope gets upset with him. He sends this death knell called an excommunication. For most leaders, kings, and others, an excommunication meant the end of you. Napoleon receives the letter, tells his general Berthier, turn the guns towards Rome and fire. Berthier says, the cannons won't reach Rome. To which Napoleon replies, neither then does the Pope's excommunication reach me. Go and take the Pope captive. So they did. Now I read in one place that there was sort of a sense of humor and they took the Pope captive and they put him in a little town which when translated into English is hell. And they locked the Pope up in hell and the Pope died in hell. But that wasn't the end of the church. Right? For that deadly wound would heal. And all the world would then marvel and follow after the beast. In the book of Revelation, we're told that there's a mystery. A mystery is something that's not easily figured out. You have to dig and search in order to get to the bottom of a mystery. The mystery is concerning the great harlot. And all the world today, if you were to talk to anyone on the street and you say, give me an example of Christianity. In fact, point to its source. 
It wouldn't matter if that person were an atheist or an agnostic, if they were Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim. Where would they point their finger? Toward Rome. There is the seat of Christianity. All the world sees it as such an interesting mystery, isn't it? While the Bible seems to tell us something a little bit different. Let's look at their own words. The Pope is of so great authority and power that he can what? Modify, explain, or interpret even divine law. Isn't that an interesting statement? We have such power and authority on earth here that I can even change God's law. I can interpret it for you, tell you what it's supposed to mean instead of what you think it means, and I can even explain it to you and modify it if I want to. He's of such great authority, huge, huge, that he can modify, explain, and interpret divine law. The Pope can modify divine law since his power is not of man, but of God. How do you know? I told you so. And he acts the vice-regent of God upon earth. I'm God's representative, and I act as his authority. Interesting, isn't it? In another quote, it says this. Of course the Catholic Church claims the change was her act. What change is that? Well, you have to look down in the title. It says a letter regarding the change of the Sabbath. The change of the Sabbath? And what do they say? Of course the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act. The act is, of, is a mark, a sign, you get it? A mark, a sign of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. We have the power to modify and explain God's law. How do you know that? I told you we do. How do you know that we have that power? Because we did it. Do you get that? Do you see the circle logic there? We have the power to change God's law. Well, how do you know we have that authority and the power? Because we changed it, which proves we have the authority. Think I'm making that up? Let's turn to the next page. Protestants. What are they? Protestants. What were they protesting? What were they protesting? They weren't really protesting the Catholic Church. What were they protesting? Okay, so let's ask a question. Who are the protestants? Can you name one? Luther. Zwingli. 
Wycliffe, Tyndale, Huss, Jerome, Erasmus. Well, we're sticking back. Calvin. About to the end of our list, huh? Wesley? Okay. All right. Knox? Very good. John Knox? Okay. Let me ask you a question. What do they all have in common? They're all Scripture only, sola scriptura. The Bible and the Bible only is our authority. Okay? Number two, what do they have? What else do they have in common? All of them were Catholic priests. Every one of them. They were all Catholic priests. Why? Because the Catholic priests were the ones that were educated. They were the ones who knew Greek. They knew Hebrew. They knew Latin. The dead language in which the scriptures were written. And they could read. And they began to call in protest for something. What were they calling for? Reform. Reform of what? We're being too general. Specific. You're right. They were calling for reform to get back to what the Bible teaches. Specifically, what the Bible teaches versus what the church was practicing. Remember, the church had adopted all kinds of practices from paganism. And then when they read the scriptures, they found out the Bible taught that it should be this way. So they called for reform. The Bible says this, let's do what the Bible says. The Bible says this, let's believe what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith alone and not by works, lest any man should boast. Let's adopt this idea and let's get rid of any practice and teaching within the church that says that I'm saved by my works. And so on and so on and so on. They called for reform. They called for reform. They called for reform. How did the church respond? Persecution. Excommunication. Burning at the stake. In fact, that period of 1,260 years, what do we call that period in history? The Dark Ages. Why was it dark? Because the church was in charge, and the church persecuted anyone and kept the truth away from everyone. And it was called the Dark Ages. What brought us out of the Dark Ages? Contrary to popular belief, it was not a discovery of Greek philosophy. It was the discovery of the Bible and the call for reform. Now, this reform went on for a while. And then they had a council. It was called the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent actually went on for 11 years. 
They had some minor setbacks, like the bubonic plague. That was a joke. And at the end of the Council of Trent, it ended this way. A cardinal by the name of Reggio had a brainstorm. He stood up because for 11 years they had been trying to define what constitutes a protestant, and they came to the sola scriptura, and what constitutes a Catholic, meaning universal. The Bible, yes, but tradition also, and our interpretation. The Protestants refused tradition and interpretation. They said, sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible alone. Cardinal Reggio had this brainstorm, and he came in and he said, you Protestants, you claim, you claim that you stand alone on the Bible and the Bible only. If that is so, then answer me this. Why then do you keep the Sunday? For you can search the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and find no command or change in joining its practice. You only find such a command from the church, the mother church. Thus, if you are true to your claim of sola scriptura, if indeed you truly are a protestant, then immediately you will stop keeping the Sunday. And you will begin to keep that Jewish day, the seventh day Sabbath. If you will not stop keeping Sunday, as your Bible, which you claim to be your authority, teaches, then you are nothing less than a hypocrite. And if a hypocrite, a heretic. And if a heretic, then you should be cast forlong from the church. That ended the Council of Trent. Ever since then, the Protestants have twisted and turned and searched throughout the scriptures to find anything that would slightly give them the hope that they could continue to keep the day of the sun, the dice solos invicti, which Constantine kept. and still claim that they believe in sola scriptura. Protestants accept the Sunday, says the Sunday Visitor, a Catholic uh, article. Accept Sunday rather than Saturday as the day of public worship after the Catholic Church made the change. Who made the change? According to them? They did. But the Protestant mind does not seem to realize that. In observing Sunday, they are accepting the authority of the spokesman of the church, the Pope. Those are some pompous words, aren't they? Look what it says next. 
in the Catholic record. Deny the authority of the church, and you have no adequate or reasonable explanation or justification for the substitution of Sunday to Saturday in the third Protestant, which is the third commandment in the Catholic Bible, by the way, and in the Protestant, the fourth. Why? Because they removed the second one and split the tenth one into two so that they still had ten. The commandment of God, the church, is above the what? The Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. Do you see that? We're above the church? We're above the Bible? Why? We told you we are. How do we prove that we're above the Bible? We changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday? And we couldn't have done that unless we were above the Bible. Amazing. Some theologians have held that God likewise directly determined the Sunday as the day of worship in the new law. And he himself is explicitly substituted, he himself has explicitly substituted Sunday for Sabbath. But this theory is entirely abandoned. It is now commonly held that God simply gave his church the power to set aside whatever day or days she would deem suitable as holy days. The church chose Sunday, the first day of the week, and in the course of time added other days as holy days. Added what? Other days. As holy days. Perhaps we should ask the question what those are. And more. Back to Daniel. But the court shall be seated and he shall take away his dominion. The court shall be seated and they will do what? Take away his dominion to consume and destroy it, how long? Forever. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints. Amen? His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion shall serve and obey, not themselves, but him. He came up among the ten. Is that true? He did. Three horns were plucked out by him. Is that true? It is. Now he has eyes like a man. Different people interpret that differently as if there's a man at the head, which there is. A mouth speaking pompous words, that is certainly true. Huge, huge. Appearance was greater than his fellows. That's for sure, because he indeed ruled over them. He wars against the saints and prevails. We know that that was true. And they admit it themselves. And they continue until the Ancient of Days came. And they're still around. They arise after the ten horns. They're different than the ten horns. They intend to change times and laws, which they claim they did. But they really did it. You get it? No one can change God's laws. You might pretend that you have. And then he persecutes For 1,260 years, the Dark Ages. And the court shall take away his dominion. How many points were in 2 Thessalonians? Twelve. How many here? Twelve. 
Next time, we'll talk about Daniel chapter 8. Twelve more. And then we'll make our way into Revelation. Twelve more in chapter 13. A dozen more in chapter 17, 16 and 17. And guess what? All together, there are at least 60 individual identifying marks. Why so many? I think God wanted us to know who this is. Amen? 60 individual identifying marks. I said individual. That's sort of not true. Many of them will be shared. Right? So in the end, there may be 50 with 10 shared. I haven't quite finished it all out yet to figure that number completely out. But those shared characteristics will teach us that that man of sin is the little horn, is the, is the, is the. God gave us all those details. More details identifying the, this man of sin than any one or anything else in Scripture, second only to Jesus Christ himself. God wanted us to get this point. Amen? It's interesting, because most people today, in the time in Earth's history, when you might just want to know for sure, so that you're not deceived by the powers and the miracles and the lying signs and wonders, most of Christianity today is looking for someone else. That man of sin. Let's sing a song together as we close, shall we?